Hello, welcome to Lemniform's Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lemniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I'm joined by Lamniform's bassist and repeat guest, Frank Meadows, to talk about Steely Dan. I'm sure I'm not alone when I say that I've seen a remarkable increase in online discussion of this band. Maybe you've seen the Asia sweatpants on your Twitter timeline. Maybe you've come across an insane Johnny joke about their music. In any case, it's hard to be a music nerd in 2021 without dealing with Steely Dan in one way or another. I wanted to have Frank back on the program to dissect why Steely Dan's music and lore are resonating with modern online audiences, and to dig into the various strands that make their music so singular in pop history. It should also be noted that we attempted to record a version of this conversation with Cat Jones, host of the Hot-Blooded podcast, and as a result, there's a chance that some of the ideas we express in this recording were in fact shaped by Jones' impeccable rock criticism. We're sorry we couldn't have you on the final version of the podcast. Shouts out to Cat. Finally... Before we get to the conversation, I'd like to mention that I have a new album out called You Can't Do This Alone. It's a remix album that features a variety of collaborators, uh, including today's guest, Frank Meadows, and a variety of musical styles. You can find the link to this recording in the description. Now, on to the conversation about Steely Dan. Did you see that thing about how apparently like Krispy Kreme are offering like free donuts to the vaccinated? Very refreshing yeah. idea. I mean, that's they're doing that with Shake Shack too, right? It's a, well, you get fries at Shake Shack. Yeah. I wonder if who is being like convinced. Convinced. <laughs> who's like, oh shit! Like I was totally anti-vax, but I'm a man for that donut. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm gonna get free fries at Shake Shack, I'm trying to go to Shake Shack anyway. Maybe we can go to Walgreens on the way. Um, thanks to yeah, thank thank thanks to Krispy Kreme, America will be back at it again. Back at it yet again. Yeah. Um, are we recording? Uh, yeah, we are. We're oh going. shit! Wow, cool. I guess we are back at it again. Then. We are. <laughs> this is this is funny. I wanted to do it this way because I feel like doing a podcast with you, one of the first things I remember doing when shutdown happened. Yeah, that's true. It was like that first weekend, I feel like, almost. Yeah. Yeah, there, 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 I've, I've mentioned this to you like off mic a few times already, but I feel like there is this weird synchronicity of the fact that like we did an in-person podcast that... I fucked up the file for, <laughs> so we had to redo it again. But you know, yeah, the first time we ever you ever talked to each other on mic was you lost the file, and then we had a duo thing at the beginning of quarantine, and then we had a, a Steely Dan podcast we tried to do that I lost the file for, <laughs> and now we're doing take two of that uh, at the again. at the at, at one of the ends of quarantine, kind right. of just like today we just. They said that we don't have to wear masks all the time if we're vaccinated, which mm-hmm. isn't going to totally change my life. But it's just an interesting little milestone to have achieved. Today. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about, like, because we were originally preparing to do this podcast with our, our my friend Kat Jones, who um, introduced, like, I wouldn't say introduced me to Steely Dan, but kind of pushed me over the ledge into being a Steely Dan fan. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we were hanging out one night and uh, she was like, oh, yeah, I'm really into Steely Dan. I feel like you, you'd really like them. I feel like, you know, I'd be like, yeah, I've always wanted to, but I've never never committed to the bit, you know? Right. Um, and we walked into this, like, gas station to get some beer, and Steely Dan was playing, and I was like, fuck, it's a sign it's from heaven. It's a total sign, yeah. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, we I had this, like, really elaborate plan of, like, how, how am I, I going to roll the conversation into talking about Steely Dan naturally. And I was like, oh, like we just went to a movie for the first time, you know, and I was thinking about the trailer for Suicide Squad 2, <laughs> which is probably more of the type of movie I expected to be my first movie back instead of 
state funeral. <laughs> totally. Yeah. For for the listener, we just uh Ian and I both went to go see our first movie back in theaters and it was uh recently colorized and restored archival footage of uh Stalin's funeral, which was just a really interesting way to kind of come out of to mark that mm-hmm. uh milestone of new of the after times or whatever we're gonna start calling it. Right. Yeah, I was expecting to go see something loud and dumb instead and maybe hear a, you know, m- movie trailer version of, you know, dirty work blasting <laughs> into my ears. Well, my, my thing about it was that I had seen so much loud and dumb stuff in the privacy of my own home over mm-hmm. the last year and a half that it, it was nice to go be in New York City and see a movie as if going to a museum. Like you see something that I could, yeah. only, I could only see there. Like, oh, this this uh, small screen cinema has access to this thing, and I'm not going to just look it up online. Like, I'm going to see it and pay for it. That felt nice. That's interesting. I feel like I've really leaned into watching... I mean, I've watched some dumb and loud movies at home. Like, I've, you know, uh, you you have seen evidence of the fact that, it, you know, my friend Henry got, got me on this, like, kung fu kick lately. But generally, I feel like the movies that I've, like, chosen to, like dive into or more of the sort of film forum world totally. over quarantine. Yeah. Except for my, uh, uh marked, uh, Marvel cinematic universe phase over the winter. I I've been tried to be serious too, but uh, I want to touch on something that you, um, brought up in passing when explaining your introduction to Steely Dan. Yeah. Uh, which is the bit, the bit. What was your perception of the bit when someone, when Kat introduced you to the fact that she, was really into Steely Dan, mm. and your thought was, I don't want to commit to the bit. What does that mean to you? Okay, yeah. So I, I want to frame this in a way that is, because I feel like part of the reason I wanted to have Kat on for the original version of this podcast is because I don't think it for her it has any degree of a bit. I think she just generally really likes that band. Um, and understandably so. Like, well, I, This is the thing that, one of the many things that's interesting about them is that I feel like there's multiple ways into their material and like types of Steely Dan fans and there's like multiple layers of irony to it. Mm. But so let let me scroll all the way back to the beginning so that I can have a bit more context for what I mean by like quote unquote committing to the bit. So my first perception of Steely Dan was like music. My dad's friends talked about not my dad. Like, it's not actually dad rock to me because my dad does, has, like, very idiosyncratic taste in music that doesn't necessarily involve the dad rock canon, as you'd expect it. But, you know, my godfather is, like, huge Steely Dan fan. And I'd always just sort of heard them as, like, the boomer band. You know, like, one of many along those lines. And then when I went to music school, it was kind of revealed that they were, like, the boomer band for musos. You know what I mean? Like, this is a band that is remarkably, uh, is remarkable for the fact that they have this, like, revolving array of session musicians that play on the songs. There's this high level of perfectionism in terms of the sonic quality and the playing. And so I had to learn a few of their tunes. I had to learn Ricky Don't Lose That Number and Reeling in the Years for an ensemble that I was in one of my, one of my classes. And it was one of the first times where I was like, Oh, I know that I should really, really take this seriously because if I were to imagine myself playing these, like getting the call from Steely Dan to like play these particular tunes for whatever reason, I know that I'd have to play it perfectly. Right. But I didn't necessarily like the music very much at the time. I, I was, you know, when I was in music school, I think I talked about this when we, when you were, uh, did the solo episode on the, this podcast. And I'm sure people who have listened to Lambda Formus Radio for some time know this about me at this point. It's like in music school, I was much more in the like prog metal, death metal, just like mm-hmm. chops, 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 chops. How many notes can you fit into a song kind of mindset? And Steely Dan are a very different type of muso stuff than that. And so I didn't really, t- I never really got into them in, in college didn't plan on exploring their work in any great de- uh, detail. And then when I was just kind of around in like the hardcore and heavy music scene in Chicago, I noticed that like a lot of the noise dudes were like really, really into Steely Dan. <laughs> it's a thing for sure. Um, and 
to me, I, I, I believe that they do enjoy it on a level like we can get into whether listening to something ironically even means anything here. But to me, I think that they there was somewhat of a bit in that they were like, ha ha, isn't it sort of funny that like we're really into the smoothest possible music, you know? Yeah. So that that's just what I mean about the bit. And I feel like that's kind of existed. There is this sort of like cult Steely Dan fan culture that accepts the fact that it's kind of funny to be really into Steely Dan. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think I was thinking about this on the way over here. I was listening, actually giving one of my first, uh, not the exact first listen, but my, one of my first like considered, uh, re-listens to two against nature. Is that the, the reunion record, the reunion record. Uh And we sort of kind of considering, the vantage point of Steely Dan decades after their core catalog themselves sort of commenting on the Steely Danness of their ideas mm-hmm. um, and trying to think about what makes it so understandable to know like, oh, this is a Steely Dan type thing, you know? Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes them so memeable. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, the presence of their presence of that band on of this band in online music communities that normally verge on more uh less quote-unquote dorky types of music more sort of avant-garde or whatever or more specific less like uh intentionally commercially palatable music yeah latching on to steely dan i think is in part because of how yeah memeable and i will maybe unpack that a little bit there uh, their notions of camp, their the types of music that they distill mm-hmm. and pull from. There's the you know the jazz thing, and their sort of overt, uh, self consciously referential choices in relationship to jazz and, and other African type of like, American music in general. I would say sure. so they're two like white dudes from you know Bard College that very consciously are. Uh, trying to as you said i think distill is a really useful word there um a, a lot of these broader trends in african-american music like soul or uh reggae or uh, jazz as you said mm-hmm. r&b into this somewhat rock band format but without it being like the rock is like a, a lowercase r right in their sound for sure well, I was also thinking about a combination of that stuff that's obvious in terms of the roots in African-American music in terms of the the instrumental decisions mm-hmm. and the arrangement decisions, but that they also have a big foot in the door of like easy listening and sort of, I know they were contemporaries with, but sort of concurrent with like Randy Newman or Frank Sinatra's sense of like humor and camp and mm-hmm. sort of modernist self-awareness in their lyric writing that doesn't really come up in a lot of other music. I was thinking about the fact that they were uh, professional songwriters before they were a band and that type of sort of like kind of like Hollywood adjacent sort of uh, wink and a nod to oneself in the writing uh, that shows up in more white quote unquote white bread types of music making. Yeah, yeah, there's something, there's kind of like, you know, the, the idiom of like one for me, one for them in movie making. Um, and I feel like a lot of professional songwriters have a, an ability to do the one for them is also for me on some level. Mm. Like there's going to be some note of my particular interests that'll sort of sneak through this more palatable, easy listening, smooth structure. And I feel like Steely Dan are kind of the the ultimate example of that, of being like, we're going to give you this like really, really palatable, really like hi-fi version of this kind of like jazzy pop song. And we're going to make it about pedophilia. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or we're going to like do things like change the perspective, like write a song from the third person about a character that's not them, you know, mm-hmm. and um or from the first person from a char- of a character that's not them, rather. Yeah, yeah, I don't feel like... I, To my knowledge, and like I'm coming at this not so much as a Steely Dan like super fan, but as someone who's just kind of generally 
curious about like why they're suddenly so popular right, again. Right. Um, to my knowledge, like I, I can't think of anything that strikes me as them writing from their own perspective as much. No, it's not autobiographical music in that way, which a lot of like blues music and like, uh, lyrics to jazz vocal songs are mm-hmm. very autobiographical or written from that perspective. But I, I I want to, before we like dig in more, I want to lay a bit more groundwork here. Um, maybe it would also be useful to have your or like Steely Dan origin story on tape here too. Well, I want to ask one more question that I think would help uh, lay that found, uh, foundation is why do you think you were made to learn Celia Dan's music in music school? That's a good question. This this gets into a, a large can of worms about like what music in general is like useful to learn. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> and what is like taught in music schools. I think a lot of what I learned was actually like almost the, the thing about Columbia College is that it borders on almost being like a trade school in uh-huh. a certain way in that like you could almost look at it as here are just songs that you just need to know how to play if you want to play a wedding. Right. You know, um, or a corporate gig or like, these are just like things that you need to have drilled into you that like, even if you don't recall, like I can get thrown onto a stage and be like, someone will like, let's stay together by Al Green. I haven't listened to that song out of deliberate choice in years. Not because it's bad, just cause I, you know, yeah, yeah. circumstantial. Um, but I could probably play it yeah, yeah. all the way down, like off the top of my head in part cause I played it a fuckload about a decade ago. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, well, I'm just thinking about like Ricky don't lose that number specifically is a probably really good way to teach, uh, syncopation. Yeah. Learning that as a drummer. I mean, they, I, I, going back to like, the idea of, of things that they're distilling. If you're learning how to like copy the products of their studio work. You could then like retrofit that to understand like the fragment of like, okay, what, what, what might they have told this drummer to do? Mm-hmm. And it's probably a very good example of something that they could relay very easily to this drummer and say like, oh, it's a syncopated like uh, Latin rhythm that does this and you play it on the bell of the, of the ride and then right. you go from there. Yeah. The chorus, it'll move into like a, a more like straight ahead rock thing for like literally two bars and then subside back into the like faux Latin groove. Yeah. I think the other elements of like why those two songs are probably uh, contingent on like what the ensemble was at the time. Like we had a certain array of singers and instrumentalists and the teacher was probably picking things in order to like satisfy pushing all of the members of that ensemble in one way or another. And it was fun to, to learn, you know, I don't, I don't like even to this day, like Ricky, Ricky don't lose that number is not like, wouldn't even be in my top five favorite Steely Dan songs. Maybe not even top 10. Like I'm, that's not like one of my go-tos from them. Um, but Reeling in the Years is a blast. That's a great, right, right. great pop tune. I'm really <laughs> yeah. glad that I learned I'm that. sure that any wedding band, yeah, that w- it would still be a smash to, mm-hmm. to bust that out. I yeah. Mean, yeah, I, I guess like kind of that plays the, the just the sort of mass uh, recognition of their music even if by people who don't even know that what the name of the band Steely Dan is, like yeah. they have a few hits like that, um, that are just so pervasive, uh, for me. Yeah. My history with the band is sort of, yeah, starts with classic rock radio and listening to that stuff growing up and then getting into serious, like record collecting and, and listening in college. Um, it, they definitely were one of those bands where, yeah, similarly to the way that you reacted to the idea of, uh, liking them being a bit, when I first heard them, my associations were with the big hits from their first album that got hyperplayed on classic rock radio and that were associated with that sort of thing. It's it, it, They become this kind of band that you think you know. Mm-hmm. You, just by mm-hmm. existing in the world for a certain amount of time, you're like, oh yeah, I know what that is. But then you realize that you only know this one section of their hits or their catalog and then uh, getting more into digging into music. Um, I guess, I guess Steely Dan was a big part of determining like what a new sta- a standard, a new standard for myself was with uh, construction of a pop album and uh, creating music that is infinitely listenable. Yeah. I think that's the, the, the big thing I got from my first big Steely Dan phase about a decade ago was why can I just listen to this 
as many times as it asks me to and it doesn't ever get old. Yeah, we brought this up in the first draft of the podcast about the sort of Pringles quality to their records. You know, like, so for example, like yesterday when when I was preparing for this podcast, yesterday I listened to their first two records like back to back. I was like, oh, you know, maybe listen to another one tonight and didn't end up doing it. And then today I listened to all the other ones of the core run straight through. And it's just like you you don't even realize how easy they go down until you've gone through all of them. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, which is kind of its own type of genius. Mm-hmm. Like that's difficult to do. And to also have this secondary layer of it being like, their songs getting like progressively darker and darker lyrically over the course of that initial run while the sounds are trending in the other direction of getting smoother and smoother and smoother and smoother Mm. um, creates this kind of like really interesting dynamic uh, for that sort of Pringles quality. I get there is sort of like a fast food or junk food feeling by the end of it of being like, you know, the especially given the way the gaucho ends you're just like now I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was there was that was part of a larger trend of things that were going on in the um, studio music scene of the '70s and like I, th- I think of like Fleetwood Mac or something too, mm-hmm. where it's just like it's both Steely Dan and Fleetwood Mac have these sort of like well storied, super dark behind closed doors, like drug use and uh, artistic frustration and like infighting and you know mm-hmm. uh, infinite sort of like creative arrogance things going on but then that results in this just like super sheeny like hit like masterpiece of just like pure digestibility mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and he's really interesting um, that tension um, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why they are able to retain sort of a kind of a punk cred is the idea that like it's very clear that it was not easy music to make despite it being very easy to listen to like it's just sort of like this is like it it is able to retain that sort of like uh, like uh, you know pulling your hair out sort of quality if you know anything about the band or like you know just dig into it for one second you can tell like this was extremely difficult and very expensive music to make you know yeah yeah this is interesting. I, I don't know if I'd necessarily call that punk, but I do agree with what you're generally gesturing at, you know? Versus, like, other pop that functions so junk food-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's the kind of, like... There's, like, cheaply made junk food. Right. And then this is, like... Even if it gives you the Pringles feeling, it is not made in the Pringles way. Right. You know? Um, it almost like the Pringles quality is not is like sort of a, a sleight of hand on the top of the music and is not like the music itself, mm-hmm. maybe. But I also like that you brought up Fleetwood Mac because the main impetus that I have for doing this podcast is like I feel like in the last five years or so, there's been this ascendant energy of like the online Steely Dan fan thing. And it's been almost entirely millennials, you know, like there's been this like rising wave of millennials as, you know, no surprise as they start begin to enter their thirties mm-hmm. of suddenly this like hyper, like it's like a, 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 a flip is a switch is flipped. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and suddenly everyone's like, Oh, I guess I'm just, I really like Asia now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, like, oh shit, suddenly Deacon Blues feels true all of a sudden. Right, right, right. right. Um, and I feel like there was something similar uh, in the earlier half of the decade that happened with Fleetwood Mac mm, and Millennials. Okay. At least in my uh, social circle in Chicago at the time, right around the time that like Heim blew up, there was this like sudden realization of like, oh, this is good. You know what it also kind of reminds me of? Fleetwood Mac. I guess Fleetwood Mac is good too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I think I think there's there are these weird like long form lives of different Sonics that just take a while to have their like enough rebirths for it to be seen as like a new discovery to some mm-hmm. that that they can see the connections through the various rebirths. I'm not really as schooled 
on how many times or you know who has been the uh, instigator of the Steely Dan sheen cycling through pop music several times but I think um, just those general ideas of yeah just like aiming for concision and digest- digestibility and uh, repeat listening while still being able to reference cheekily a lot of different styles and like literary tropes I mm-hmm. think is something that pops up in quote unquote like independent music a lot um, yeah. and can be talked about forever. You know, I, I feel like maybe Father John Misty would be an interesting modern analog in some respects. Yeah, I, that, that, he's never done it for me. Never, me yeah. neither. <laughs> um, but like, I could see someone who. It's actually interesting now that he I'm, thinks he's doing it right. Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, because I was, I was going to say that like, here's I, Steely Dan once. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I want to kind of lay that groundwork for the online Steely Dan thing. Yeah. Because it does feel simultaneously niche and like totally pervasive on like music Twitter or music Instagram. Like, you know, the fact that it was the noise dudes, it seems broadly true. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's also like uh, Insane Johnny, I think of as like kind of ground zero for like the internet music nerd faux ironic or like pseudo ironic Steely Dan appreciation thing is that would do you would you agree with that or what's your take I think well I think that the uh the right around the uh in 2017 right around the like transition from Wolf Eyes Psycho Jazz to Insane Johnny sort of I I wonder what like I like to think about some like what the band meeting must have been like with the other members of Wolf Eyes telling uh, John Olson that he had to uh, rebrand his <laughs> meme account away from the band account, and I wonder how much the, all the Steely Dan memes had to do with that, right. because it seems like it's something that's very hyper specific to him specifically, and not necessarily like there were a lot of Wolf Eyes memes that were like, "Oh, this is funny" because it relates to the noise scene at large, and then there was just a ton of things where you're like, all right, this is just this, this one guy in this band, his personality. (laughs) Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that that was, that was one of the obvious examples because yeah, like I don't, I don't, that was the first time that I was truly aware of it was through his account. And I, I don't know. I think the reason if you're looking for a broader reason why I think like noise musicians are interested in this band. Mm-hmm. I think it's because of you can look at it a few ways, just like a a type of fetish uh fetishization of sound. Yeah. As sound in itself. Like there's a way to listen to Steely Dan records where you're only just like absorbing the purity of like the perfect capture of uh, a guitar tone mm-hmm. and there's there's just a cliche among record collectors I think it also has to do with like the crossover between noise musicians and record collecting yeah and yeah, how yeah. Steely Dan's records are sort of seen as like platonic records and like it's, it's a kind of a cliche that like that's the best record to test a new stereo out on although I don't necessarily agree with that because that I think it kind of makes your stereo sound better than it does. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, like, like it's a record yeah. that will sound good on literally any system. <laughs> you know? like, but it's something I do whenever I'm like move houses or, you know, set up a new speakers or like find a new component to my, like my rig. I, I always put on gaucho and I'm mm-hmm. like, ah, oh. but it's more to feel like the, Oh yeah, this I, I, I've hooked it up. Like, we're right. here. Like, this is a record listening. This is, like, what it means to listen to a record is listening to Gaucho. It's like yeah. a celebratory cigar of an album. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember uh, like, there was a summer that I went to, uh, I think we both went to one of the, the, the Berkeley summer programs, mm-hmm. and I took, like, an audio class from that. And Babylon Sisters was, like, shown in that class to, by, like, professors of audio engineering. It's like, this is... This is it. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and so I think there's this sort of like a, uh, I was also going back to the thing of their, their legacy of like easy listening, you know, Randy Newman, Frank Sinatra, I think, uh, Esquivel and like bachelor pad music 
Are you aware of Esquivel? That does not ring any bells. No. It's basically novelty music, but mm-hmm. he Esquivel was a big band arranger, uh, but pri- primarily an electrical engineer who was one of the first artists to uh, really sort of overexploit stereo and the fact that like people would be listening to their his music in stereo and do all these weird sort of zany like trumpets with like zing over from like one speaker to the other. But his background in composing music was from like an electrical engineering perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's how a lot of that prime run Steely Dan music functions is sort of like it's music for speakers also because they weren't really seeing themselves as like a touring band. They were like, we are making music for people's speakers in their homes. Right. And that's a very kind of noise adjacent approach to sound is is thinking of sound as it is going to be experienced rather than representationally yeah when you when you started going down that uh that rabbit hole um or that description i shouldn't um no it's it's all, <laughs> <laughs> all of these are rabbit holes yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, one yeah. Way or another um it kind of reminded me of like sophie who i've been thinking about mm. a lot this year and in general though like you know i i wrote this thing a while back about um listening to music monophonically yeah. rather than polyphonically which I think is entirely related to the idea of listening to things as things that come out of your speakers rather than as like some sort of representation of a thing that is happening somewhere else. You know, it's like, no, this is it. Right. Like the music coming from the speakers and hitting your ears or, you know, playing on your headphones. That is the music. It's not like some sort of degraded version of it that you're, you know, only now just trying to like, right. grasp at or something. And obviously people talk about like uh, the Beatles were the first people to do that self-consciously in a way or mm-hmm. what, or the ones that like everyone at least has a like broad like macro culture sense of someone doing it. But Steely Dan does it in a way where it's not immediately obvious that it's like speaker music. Like they're not doing any sort of like goofy effects of like, oh, let me show you that let's show off the fact that it's in stereo or that like we're doing overdubs. Like right. it still does feel and retain the feeling of a, of a, like a, a super clean organic performance, which all, I think allows it to retain sort of it's like jazz cred in this way that like, mm-hmm. even though this, this guitar solo is like cut up a thousand times and used from a bunch of different takes, they'd splice it in a way that it feels normal. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It's not futurism. There's no futurism in their music. Like that's that would be the the way to contrast it with like the PC music Sophie kind of approach to monophonic listening, which is the idea like that sort of production style is all about saying like taking the raw elements of sound itself and pushing them as far as you can to ignore like ign- removing the idea of there being a drum set ever. Right. You know. Um, and just being like, there's a sound that is low that happens normally where a quote unquote kick drum would. And Steely Dan are not interested in tricking you or uh, making you feel like you're listening to anything other than the instruments that produced the sounds. Um, they're just trying to make you hear them in such a way that is literally impossible under any other circumstances. Right. Amazing. Yeah, no, it's 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 like you're you're hearing the the guitar as a microphone hears it <laughs> through your speaker and but it's not uh showing you blatantly it's it, like the its material qualities as a microphone it's like you're still hearing as like oh that's a guitar solo but yeah. it's heard in a way that like you know so anyway that that that's why it has like cred quote unquote cred but thinking about why it is funny to people who like more esoteric types of music i think one of the reasons why it's funny is sort of this kind of like group catharsis of realizing that everyone loves it, but yeah. that it's not this thing that like, you know, it's, you, you don't name drop Steely Dan or you didn't at a certain point, like name drop it as like the absolute coolest thing to be into, but more th- the opposite. You name it as like the enemy number one or the, the guilty kind of- pleasure or yeah, something. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm aware of a point where like, Steely Dan was, and that music was seen as like the least possible cool thing. I feel like that might be more of a Gen X attitude, right? You know? Yeah, totally. It's too a little bit too close to home. Mm-hmm. But um, 
I, I think that's part of the thing. One of the things that makes the memes and the like the twit like the good Steely Dan takes Twitter funny is that like it's one of these bands that like yeah the last five years you've been like everyone's been going through it like oh yeah like a group therapy through the kind of making fun of it but loving it mm-hmm. of like oh yeah we do all love this band you know yeah um, yeah this I'm glad you brought up good Steely Dan takes um, because that's. Like there, it's interesting what kind of group think evolves then out of the sort of group therapy, right? right? Like the the joke, there's like only like three or four jokes that people make about Steely Dan, you know. Um, Donald Fagan playing a melodica, right? Yeah. Um, it being about people going through midlife crisis, mm. uh, it being produced really really well. Bar- yeah. The Bard College, I think, also think that was part of the, the one of the things that made in Jane Johnny's thing funny was that he was making fun of Bard College and its sort of pervasive presence on the, like, Brooklyn DIY scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that Steely Dan all went to Bard, I think it's I think it's just sort of a perfect storm of, like, kind of, like, holding up in the mirror and being like, oh, ha-ha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you can make fun of Bard and Steely Dan at the same time, and it's very easy. <laughs> like, yeah. There's, yeah, there's sort of, like, a delicious um, takedown of, like, Oh, you thought that you were doing something maybe like cutting edge and groundbreaking coming out of Bard, but you're also in the same lineage as Steely Dan, whether you like it or not, you know, whereas I guess I, I feel like the, uh, the Berkeley, there's no like false consciousness from the Berkeley grads. Like they all know that they're from Berkeley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that like, yeah. Um, there was a Steely Dan ensemble at my music school. Really? Af- after I left. Okay. Yeah. Which I totally would have done. But it makes me sort of proud of uh, UNC Asheville for sort of embracing it that directly. Whereas I feel like my experience with Berkeley with sort of like the supplementary programs was that like, of course, Steely Dan was like the foundation or seen as the like example, but I'm not sure if it was ever so explicit mm-hmm. as to be like, oh, you guys, like, we're teaching you all to be as if Steely Dan would hire you tomorrow. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, because that's what it is basically as, mm-hmm. a, as an institution, but I'm not sure if, if like Steely Dan's catalog is celebrated so explicitly. Yeah, I wonder what it's like these days along those lines. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it feels like the there's like three three or f- maybe four different types of Steely Dan fans, you know? Broadly, yeah. Um, there's the musos, which we've discussed, yeah, of, like yeah. the sort of session musician, like people who think it's cool that they did a 12-tone row in one of their songs. You know, it is pretty cool. It is very cool. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, and who are like really into this sort of like musical technicality, like can talk to, talk your ear off about like Moo major chords and whatnot. Um can you know recite all of the various players that you know cycled through the Steve Gad fills all the like that sort of yeah shit. yeah the the Bernard Purdy stands mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's then there's the um sort of pure Sonics mm-hmm. fans like the record collectors and the noise guys which I think will group together for the the ease of conversation yeah um based on the the criteria that you drew up then I think there's like and I th- this this group may overlap with other groups. Um, actually, let me let me describe the other easy group to describe, which is people who, without making it complicated, just like their music. <laughs> you know, sure. Um, like people who just like oh, like do it again's on on the radio. I enjoy this. You know. <laughs> um, and finally, there's the kind of like arch ironic. I'm in on the joke with this band kind of fandom mm-hmm. um which i think is entirely about like being hip and i don't choose that world that word uh accidentally yeah uh being hip to the sort of thing that they're doing lyrically and the sort of sense of existential dread that comes up in a lot of their songs and sort of like dialing in on that and being like ah it's it is both funny that i like steely dan but it is also telling that I like Steely Dan because perhaps I am a character in a Steely Dan song or aspire to be or fear to be in some way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I think I have out of all those categories, I have 
uh, the least amount of experience with the final category, and I think that might be the Steely Dan brain that I am uh, evolving to as mm-hmm. as my like extended lifetime phase with this band sort of continues is sort of I realize like I'm not the type of listener I have not been the type of listener so far that really digs in super hard to all of the lyrical uh, acrobatics that they do I mean yeah. I'll admit to Deacon Blues being one of my uh, karaoke go-tos and sort of like the because I see that as sort of love that song and uh the lyrics to it embody kind of a uh, the distillation of their vibe of like totally. the, the down and out hipster or mm-hmm. whatever and I don't know if I I love that song and, and karaoke it I don't think because I am that person but because I love how like yeah like literary it is it's so it's like a ballad or something it's or like a just a, a very direct and clear message and story um, that's just so resonant with a lot of different types of experience. Yeah, I don't ever feel like their their characters are so specific that you either are or are not them. Yeah, you do get the sense that they probably are writing about, if not themselves, and maybe people that they interacted with yeah. on some level. Mm-hmm. There's just a level of attention to detail. Um, and the fact that they're obviously like in LA for a lot of it or in New York and obviously would run across like aspiring actresses or drug dealers or, you know, porn directors or what have you Mm -hmm. that like, it makes sense that like, they would be like, we've nailed you to a fucking wall with this song. (laughs) Well, that's what, yeah. So they're like, it's like a new at the time for them, like in the seventies, a new type of uh, lyric writing that was, I think it was just, it's just a type of modernism that didn't exist. Yeah. With the type of songwriting that they were dealing with. I'd like to briefly talk about the seventiesness of it, because I think that like having some sort of historical context for their music maybe would elucidate to someone how and why it may be resonating today with people. Um, So I think of them very much as being, sort of like the emblematic band of the turn from the idealistic 60s into a a kind of like refined cynicism, you know? Um, Like Kid Charlemagne is a a song I think about a lot, about sort of this person who's like living large selling acid in San Francisco in in the 60s, and then suddenly the world changes on him. And everyone gets a job and cuts their hair or whatever, you know? And suddenly he's on the run from the authorities. Right. Like the idea that he's, he could have been like this sort of hollowed figure all comes crashing down in an instant, you know, uh, or on camp by a thrill, like changing of the guard. I feel like it's kind of a, a, another way of writing about that, that same sort of idea. And I, I, it's like their music is very much associated with like yuppie dumb in a lot of ways. Okay. Yeah. Which I feel like is the, the the hippie to yuppie turn happens over the course of the 70s from people going from being like what if we just like do drugs and break out of society's systems and like opt out of all this to being like wait maybe making a ton of money is much better (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah well i i don't think that they represent the ideology the 80s ideology that you're talking about of making a ton of money i think they represent the um like having ambitions Mm -hmm. more broadly, which I think is just like in terms of their raw music, it's, it's, or being square, being square in the sense of like being like maybe focused and like, um, realistic about your world and your capabilities, which includes, uh, the, like being realistic about your potential being very high as an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm mostly speaking to their, their lyrical content. When I'm yeah. Saying this, but th- you could certainly look at this from the musical perspective as well. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm evolving into like a, the, the lyrical reads yeah. of their, of their music. Cause it's like, I feel like 10 years into digging into the band, I'm still sort of stuck on the arrangements. <laughs> uh, 
No, but I I read that for sure. It's 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 sort of like a like a like an optimistic pessimism. Hmm. It feels like it's like a like in order to well, I guess yeah, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at is that like in order to access the the actual uh, like scope of your optimism, you need to like kind of come from a pessimistic zone and be like, oh, that's not possible. But like, let's now consider what is totally yeah. Yeah, the the sense of like resign. There's a certain degree of resignation that like whatever sort of big dreams that you had about like changing the world. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm like overemphasizing "Can't Buy a Thrill," but like only a fool would say that. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a song sort of explicitly about being like all of these like utopian dreams that like a John Lennon type might have been singing about. Right. Are completely ludicrous and are like self-evidently failing in front of you. And I think about it like when you mentioned like squareness, um, because in a lot of ways they're actually like almost more of like culturally they're, they, they're more early sixties than late sixties as people, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Becker and Fagan are cause they're more like beatniks. They're not like hippies. Right. You know? And so they kind of look down upon a lot. There's like a, a real sense of like, disdain for a lot of the people that they're writing about. Sure. I mean, yeah, no, I think that, that, that that's right on the money in terms of, I think the sixties is an oversimplified decade to, mm-hmm. to the, uh, denizens of the hard rock cafe industrial complex <laughs> of how we understand right. music history. Those who are, who are 17 and will care about Woodstock forever. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! No, yeah, that, that's I, I think for context, it's like uh, what was it? Was it Woodstock twenty nineteen? Yeah, Woodstock twenty nineteen. That was was. Oh a, my god! That happened. Wow, it's so crazy. After the last year to remember that Woodstock twenty nineteen was a thing, but I I, I found this like amazing quote from somebody like Woodstock twenty nineteen was being canceled because they didn't get the right permitting, and so they had like a GoFundMe or some shit, and so there are all these like testimonial quotes from uh people who like donated to the cause to keep Woodstock 2019 alive and it was somebody says like I am I am 17 and Woodstock will always be important to me and I just feel like man there's so much I I wonder what the people who like some of the people like you know that actually played at Woodstock would think of how it's seen and remembered mm. um yeah, I, I yeah. anyway, all I'm saying is that the 60s is an oversimplified decade in our in memory and includes a lot of amazing stuff that I think that Steely Dan was like totally hip to and into uh, literarily like in terms of experimentation in art um, that gets lost on sort of like the hippification of the whole thing. Right. It was just like such a narrow window of like a amazing time. Yeah. Um, yeah. There uh, maybe another uh, point of comparison would be like the Zappa thing, you okay. know, like the way that like Zappa is also like a certain kind of god of musos who clearly fucking hated hippies and right. all of hippiedom, um, and is more like openly like libertarian in a lot of his musical leanings. Yeah. Whereas Steely Dan are kind of you don't really know where they sit on on anything because they're not like a political band by any stretch of the right. imagination. Um. But what I was going to, I guess what I was, I was getting at is like squareness. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the square characters in their songs feel almost square because they're boxed in, mm. you know, um, there's a, a, a recurring sense of like these people who are suddenly find themselves like locked into an extremely boring and shitty lifestyle and find their life kind of collapsing as a result. Like that to me is what Deacon blues is about is it's about not actually someone who is like playing saxophone and, you know, drinking Scott scotch whiskey. It's about someone who's fantasizing about that lifestyle. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, and like thinking of this kind of like, well, I live this incredibly unfulfilling nine to five salary man life. Mm-hmm. But I'm having these like self-destructive fantasies about being like a jazz hipster who drunk drives himself to death, you know? Totally, which is, I think is way more interesting always than, you know, the fantasy of like uh, 
living off the land and like returning to like a like a quote-unquote primitive existence or whatever yeah they're dealing with city life and the sort of glorification of city life very urban band which is a very almost more like late 50s than it is 60s Mm -hmm. um it's this guy same it's the same thing that dylan comes out of and it's the reason why dylan had such like an animosity towards like the way he saw like the folky scene moving um, and it's sort of like bubble, you know, do you, and this is the thing that's really interesting to me because I feel like there's, I'm trying to like pin down as many possible reasons for their, for Dan's resurgence in mm. popular culture. Do you think that like, there's a certain kind of like, so part of it is like, there's this great Lindsay Zolads piece that I've shared to the group chat when we were preparing for this episode, just about like her kind of like rediscovering like her dad's taste in music and be like oh now i'm also in my 30s and like can acknowledge without ego that all this shit is great um which i can certainly relate to i think that's a big part of why i am like more receptive to steely dan than i think i would have been a decade ago Mm -hmm. i also think that there's a, a degree to which like these these sort of songs about cynical resignation and like the confines of yuppiedom feel actually like very apt to maybe like the like professional managerial class on the other end of a lot of like these sort of social movements that seem to like cycle repetitively and not make a substantial progress. Like Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a certain kind of reactionary element of, of or defeatist element would be maybe a better way to say it about people suddenly getting into Steely Dan out like when it's like Biden saying nothing will fundamentally change you know maybe maybe I'm like reaching to a cosmic degree here but <laughs> no but I mean I think I think I think you're tying it back to the idea that what you're essentially saying is there's like a Trump era resurgence of appreciation for this band mm. um yeah, I think I think that there's a desire broadly to sort of reclaim the parts of any sort of like established order that we can actually like redeem as as a part of a, a subversive narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think that that plays broadly into my perceptions of like the attempt in the last five or six or like a post Trumpian move to reclaim like Americana and country music and those sorts of things like folk song and ballads or like these types of narrative fictions in song Mm -hmm. um, from the hard rock cafe industrial complex and (laughs) the, the like broader conservative ideas of like Americanness. Yeah. I, I think that there's, there's a way in which Steely Dan posits an alternative narrative that, uh, presents, a an actual prescription for how to navigate uh the complexities of modernity that i think is refreshing to people once they if they could if it resonates with them in that way right yeah it's like i guess thinking of it as like particularly like a trump era resurgence is interesting because that would actually mean that it's in some way responding to the end of the obama era mm-hmm. like you yeah you could sort of see like the end of the obama era and the end of the 60s as being like a twin like a, a repeat in a, a kind of like generational psychological way yeah. and Steely Dan being like, well, you know, nice try. <laughs> our, our, our little wild times are over, yeah. but here's the music that you listen to totally. no. <laughs> when they are, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, yeah, I remember like as a kid, like the Obama campaign and like him being elected as feeling like, Oh wow. Like I'm having my sixties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a, that's a very apt comparison. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, like it's that's something that needs should be applied and thought about across their catalog. It's just a broad catalog with a lot of nuance. Yeah. Um, Do you want to briefly maybe just be like pure fans for a second? Sure. And like quit the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the intellectualization because I mean, so my approach is I haven't actually listened to the uh, the post reunion stuff at all. I've been like pretty dedicated just to like can't buy a thrill through Gaucho. I want to like get those. Yeah. Before I approach the postmodern Steely Dan the way you described it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so of those of the classic run, like which is your favorite? 
I I, I Gaucho. I mm-hmm. think just because it, it's I see it as still sort of like the perfect track list. Um, their song, their Steely Dan albums. I think Asia might have some better songs. Like I think Deacon Blues is like a perfect Steely Dan song. Yeah. Peg but slaps. Peg, <laughs> peg slaps. Yeah, those Michael McDonald backup vocals are some of the best like sonic things. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think Gaucho is just like, it's impossible to not just come back to that one mm-hmm. consistently. But um, in recent years, I've gotten more into Pretzel Logic and the Royal Scam. All of that prime run. It's, yeah. I think there's something to love about all of them. There's at least like one great song in every single one of those records. Yeah, and they're, it's distinct. Like you can hear the their production style evolving, and there's different things to love about different stages in that evolution. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like yeah, Asia and Gaucho are their own separate like duo, and that the ones before them are kind of this gradual progression, and Asia represents like kind of a break. Um, into almost more like legitimate jazzness than their earlier stuff. Um, my personal favorite is Royal Scam. I think that record is like top to bottom the most like fun record of theirs to listen to. It's more fun. Yeah. yeah. Gaucho appeals to me just in my sensibility of like needing like a serious art object. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they really like knock that out of the park in terms of what they're going for. I just need those minor key rock jams with guitars. Yeah. <laughs> like, kind of, I guess what it's being said. Yeah, here. no, I, 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 there's 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 a type of fun that yeah, Gaucho misses because it's um it's so clean almost. It's so clean and it's it's reaching for such high heights, and it hits that. I mean, even this freaking the cover is just like I, I'm for the listener. I'm having I have my Steely Dan records out and uh, yeah, Frank brought props. I brought props, <laughs> and there's something about this um. This cover, the cover of Gaucho, that reminds me of like a Diego Rivera painting or something. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, I feel you. Yeah, yeah. And, and it just, it, like, this must be considered is mm-hmm. the vibe. And, and it's already in a frame. Like, it comes pre-framed for you in some way. Totally. You know? And Royal Scam is the same, is the same way, but it's it's a little bit more of like a... Uh, it's like more of a romantic era painting in some way. It's, more, just, like, it's more like Cheers than a, than a painting. If it feels more like a, like a good television show from that time than it does like a... Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is the title track on that record is one that I'm always like, that's interesting that they did that. Right. Because um, it's like... Musically, it's like so dark and yeah. like foreboding. And it's about... It's like, I think like the most sympathetic... Like one of the more sympathetic lyrical portraits that they've ever done about like the experience of like immigrants from Puerto Rico coming to New York and experience like entering into what they describe as the Royal scam. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you could have a leftist read of Steely Dan (laughs) based on a song, like a a song like that. Yeah. And that's, that's such an interesting decision, especially as like the closing track. Like it's this really ominous, like dark, like if you're, if you, you know, I know that I have a fair number of metalheads that listen to my podcast. And like, if you're, into, uh, there's no good first Steely Dan record for a metalhead, but if there were to be one, it would be the Royal Scam. I would yeah, say. I've, 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 I'm glad you brought that up because I've been interested in your like. I've, there's an undercurrent there that does feel like it's ripe for crossover mm-hmm. with um, you know, metal that is broadly gestural in its in its arrangement and uh, like very like topical. Yeah, and it's and it's a. Uh, um, it's con is lyrical content. I I will go back. This is like I don't know who this tangent is for, but it's for someone. <laughs> um, I I am really into this band, Pain of Salvation, who are like this like Swedish chronological contemporaries of Dream Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like a Swedish progressive metal band with this absolute megalomaniac megalomaniacal lead singer who writes all of it. Um, you can see why I may be interested in this guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was listening to one of their records um, in high school. And my dad came in and he's like, this sounds like Steely Dan. Hell yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of does. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it's this song that's like faux disco in the way that, say, maybe like The Fez is kind of faux disco mm. um, of like just 
really i'm sure if i actually broke it down there might be like a moon major chord in there somewhere too um there might be some other sonic qualities but i think that sort of like text painting and like high attention to detail there is i would say if like if you're a prog metal fan in particular like you don't have to do like triple layer polyrhythms and mashuga polymeter Mm -hmm. to to sound complicated you could also just play like steely dan (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Um, but I know you also, you're a big proponent of the the first Donald Fagan solo record post Steely Dance. I, I want to like pass you the ball and let you cook for a minute about this one. Well, there's not a ton for me to say about it other than like, I think it's, it's sort of a, like, if there is a few, I mean, this is the futurist Steely Dan record. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this record, the, the Nightfly is, is like a perfect... Um, example of this sort of like deep fiction, uh, fictional tendency in in Fagan songwriting in general. I mean, the whole concept of the album is that it's like a like a jazz late night jazz radio station from the future, from this sort of like dystopian utopian suburban society, right? Um, and that's the broader pastiche of the like the vibe. Um, and I don't know. It's, I, 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 I think in terms of like sound quality and that the, the, the raw sonics, it's, I always see it as sort of this like extension of Gaucho. Mm-hmm. Like he took it one step further and made it more cheeky and a little less like, like heavy than Gaucho's ambitions. Um, I actually like in terms of like the stereo testing stuff, uh, Donald Fagan seemed to be kind of like like he his other big solo record note to me Morph the Cat is almost like too hi-fi like it's like hi-fi to a point where you're like this is crazy (laughs) like I actually don't know if I want this to be this sound this good like it feels like I'm not listening to music anymore right it's like listening it's like watching uh, TV where like they've got like the motion smoothing on it or something and just makes everything feel like you're watching like a soap opera yeah which is my feeling about watching The Hobbit yeah exactly (laughs) yeah no it's 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 um it's a type of making music that I'm yeah, you you watch those types of that type of television, and like you are no longer believing that you're watching something real. You're like you're watching something HD, and I yeah. think there's something off putting about that. But the Nightfly like uh, taps this uh, taps into the itch that one would have to hear something super hi fi and catchy and crisp, but a little more lighthearted than uh, Gaucho or any of his later work. I think it's, I think it's the great uh, I think you know it's a great record in the canon of their work. Although I mean I mean Walter Becker's not on this, but yeah. um, how do you feel about the reunion records? I know you said you've been. I've actually just started digging into Two Against Nature. Um, I definitely want to give it a more consideration because it's it's I think it's a really cool example of artist an artist or a pair later in their career commenting on themselves mm-hmm. without uh, playing it safe with their sound. Uh, for my, my initial impressions of listening to it pretty recently, like playing, playing it safe with their sound, uh, giving sort of like a, a wink and a nod to themselves without getting too down and like into cringe. Sure. <laughs> and not any more than they already are, depending on where you're starting from. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But it's like it's almost just like they 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 took that record as an opportunity to like uh, summarize, like like read through their catalog and summarize, like oh well, this is what we were trying to do, and let's do it again, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, so like it kind of feels like almost like a perfect note to end on because we've done it again. (laughs) Um, But yeah, are there any other sort of final, final notes of the Steely Dan story that you want to remark upon before we close this baby up? Uh, It's ongoing. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a band. It's a, it's a, it's a catalog really that will sort of uh, continue to find new life and a new audience. I think it's, and and rightfully so it's like, there's almost not uh, too much. You can say, I mean, 
you can't say too much about them. Yeah. I actually, I do have one last question that I know I asked the first time we tried this. Cause I think it's a really, it's almost more interesting cause I don't, I think we don't have a good answer. Um, and I think it may be an interesting, like in question to leave the listeners with as well is who is the modern equivalent to Steely Dan? And do we have one? I was thinking about this. It's almost like kind of saying, do we have a modern equivalent to the Beatles? Which I don't know about that. Uh, I, in that, I think that there is a uh, pervasiveness to their influence on how people make records. Mm-hmm. That, but there's no single like artist that reminds me on first listen like, oh, this sounds like Steely Dan. Yeah, sounds like Steely Dan. I feel like there's no one these days it's just like so out of step with the kind of music that's being made but feels like steely dan maybe might be more a more fruitful um i mean they changed uh, studio practice to a degree that is it's like impossible to say like what it was and wasn't influenced by them mm-hmm. i think yeah yeah, I'm almost like it's it's not even a matter of influence. Like it's it's more like are there other artists operating today that like activate the same parts of your brain that Steely Dan do? Mm. Yeah. Um the, my short answer to it right now is is no there's not one that comes to mind, but mm-hmm. there's there's lots of ways to listen to a lot of music being made right now that I think you know, in it's hard to separate it from other stuff that was going on. There's some stuff that also feels like it's wrapped up in like a Joni Mitchell comparison or something like it's sort of like jazz adjacent, like rock, hi-fi rock folk jazz thing. I think that that that's kind of all over independent music right now in a way that's really exciting. Um, Yeah. Word. Yeah. Well, this, this was great. Thanks for, giving it another shot with me I'm glad we were able to do it sorry Kat that you were not able to join us on this particular episode but I'm sure we'll have you back at another point in the future Dad, Dad, Dad. thank you for listening and thank you Frank for joining me if you enjoyed this episode give it a good rating and review or send it to someone who you think would enjoy it if you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at lamniformsband at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. More episodes soon. <laughs>